as always, trigger warning, there is very little technology in the story, a little bit of gore, a lot of injustice, and a fuck ton of mystery, okay? I'm gonna, I won't tell you the name of, I'll tell you the person's name, but I won't tell you what their, like, their nom de plume was. So, Margaretha Gertrude McLeod, who was actually Margaretha Zell, better known by her stage name, the Matahari, was a Dutch exotic dancer and courtesan who was convicted of being a spy for Germany during World War I. And that is the first point of contention. Keep, keep that in mind as the story goes on. Despite her having admitted under interrogation to taking money to work as a German spy, many people still believe she was innocent because the French army needed a scapegoat. She was executed by firing squad in France. So those are the facts, okay? Those are the facts that we have. First mystery, remember I said this is literally in two parts. Two parts. The first mystery is about the German spy thing and the second mystery is a much more modern times um they fucked up okay they fucked up and they only realized that in like 2018 so margaretha was born in 1876 in the netherlands she was the eldest of four children she had three brothers and her, her father owned a hat shop and made some successful investments in the oil industry and this afforded him the opportunity to give her an affluent childhood and schooling despite traditional assertions that Matahari was partly Javanese. This is also, this is part of her story that she made up for this whole thing. Scholars have concluded that she had no Asian or Middle Eastern ancestry and that both her parents were just 100% full cream Dutch. That's what they were. Soon after her father went bankrupt in 1889. So we're, like, we're talking like a couple weeks ago. Her parents divorced and her mother passed away in 1891. Her father remarried in Amsterdam and the family fell apart. She then moved to live with her godfather in a place called Sneek. S-N-E-E-K. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. It's not. Subsequently, she studied to be a kindergarten teacher. But when the headmaster began to flirt with her, conspicuously, she was removed from the institution by her offended godfather. A few months later, she fled to her uncle's home in The Hague. That is The Hague, like the place where they do the trials. At 18... She answered an, in, an advertisement in a Dutch newspaper placed by the Dutch colonial army captain, Rudolf MacLeod. Listen to this, okay? Listen to this and just, just try and imagine this shit for a second, okay? At 18, she answered an advertisement in a Dutch newspaper placed by Dutch colonial army captain, Rudolf MacLeod, who was living in what was then the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia, and was looking for a wife. They married in 1895. He was the son of a captain who was descended from the MacLeods of Skye, apparently. So big Scottish heritage, very proud family name. And it enabled her to move to Indonesia. So she, she, not only could she move to Indonesia, but she also moved into the Dutch upper class, right? These were her aspirations, upper class, lovely. It placed her finances on a sound footing as well. She moved with her husband to Malang on the east side of the island of Java, they had a fair bit of disappointment. Overall, the marriage was, was, was said to be quite a disappointment. Uh, McLeod was an alcoholic and he regularly beat his wife, who was 20 years younger than him and whom he blamed for his lack of promotion. Right, okay. Remember yesterday we had a discussion about the trash. It's taking itself out again. He also openly kept a concubine 
a socially accepted practice in the Dutch East Indies at the time. I'm pretty sure it was an accepted practice if your wife wasn't living with you there. But I mean, imagine the Highlander who lost his sword and was, you know, just like, you know what Merv Hughes looks like? That's kind of what her husband looked like. So she then abandoned him temporarily and uh, moved in with another Dutch officer and started studying the Indonesian traditions. And for several months, she did this and joined local dance companies. And this was where she developed the, the persona of the Matahari. This is where it came to life. She revealed that her art artistic name was Matahari, the word for sun in the Malay language, literally eye of the day, Matahari. That's what she was going for. Lucifer, morning star, Matahari, light of the day. At McLeod's urging, Zell returned to him, but his behavior did not change. Surprise, shock, cold water realization. She escaped her circumstances by studying the local culture. So she, she poured herself into this. She really lived it. Now this part, this is, this is, I mean, this is a massive segue, but another fucking mystery. Their children fell violently ill from complications relating to the treatment of syphilis, contracted from their parents. Though the family claimed they were poisoned by an irate servant. Can you imagine the scandal? Hey, the venom. One of the children survived. The daughter survived, but the son passed away. And some sources maintain that one of McLeod's enemies may have poisoned a supper to kill both of the children. After moving back to the Netherlands, the couple officially separated in 1902. So 1902, Zell was awarded. So when they moved back and they divorced 1906 officially, Zell was awarded custody of, of, of Jeanne um, and McLeod was required to pay child support. He did not. Shock. Again, shock. Absolute shock. He's like the fucking, he's the worst Highlander. During a visit to Jeanne with her father, McLeod decided not to return Jeanne to her mother. Zell did not have the resources to fight the situation and accepted it, believing that while McLeod had been an abusive husband, he'd always been a good father. Jeanne later died at the age of 21, also possibly from complications relating to syphilis. And that is, that's the, that's the Dutch East Indies and the early life portion of this. So in 1903, Zell moved to Paris, where she performed as a circus horse rider using the name Lady MacLeod. But wait, much to the disapproval of the Dutch MacLeods. Struggling to earn a living, she also posed as an artist's model. She was very self-assured. She was, you know, like confident, assertive. She knew, what she, she knew how to do things. Mata Hari began to win fame as an exotic dancer by 1904. She was a contemporary of dancers that I don't know. Isadora Duncan and Ruth St. Denis, I don't know them. I recognize St. Denis, but I, I think I recognize something else, like a place called St. Denis, not the person. But these, these other dancers were leaders in the modern dance movement at the time. And at that point, it was where modern dance was looking to Asia and Egypt for artistic inspiration. So Matahari was coming with that Indonesian Java learning that she had, and it put her in the best position possible for what they were looking for. Critics would later write about this and other such movements within the context of Orientalism. And she even got a booking agent. What's this, 19... That's it, pirate. That's where it's from. Saint Denis is in Red Dead. That's right. Promiscuous, flirtatious, and openly flaunting her body, Matahari captivated her audiences and was an overnight success from the debut of her act at the Musée Guimet. I butchered that, no doubt, in 1905. 
She became the longtime mistress of the millionaire Lyon industrialist Emile Etienne Guimet. Guimet? I don't know. Who knows? Not me. And he had founded the Musée. She posed as a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu birth, pretending to have been immersed in the art of sacred Indian dance since childhood. She was photographed numerous times during this period, nude or nearly so. Some of these pictures were obtained by McLeod and strengthened his case in keeping custody of their daughter. They never change. They never change. The trash just, it's just always. Matahari brought a carefree, provocative style to the stage in her act, which garnered wide acclaim. The most celebrated segment of her act was her progressive shedding of clothing until she wore just a jeweled breastplate and some ornaments upon her arms and head. She was never seen bare-breasted. She wore a body stocking for her performances that were similar in color to her own skin. But that was later omitted. I think it also just takes a lot of time, you know, putting on like a full body stocking that, you know, between shows. No. <laughs> Although her claims about her origins were fictitious, it was very common for entertainers of her era to invent colorful stories about their origins as part of the show. Her act was successful because it elevated erotic dance to a more respectable status and so broke new ground in a style of entertainment for which Paris was later to become world famous. Her style and free world attitude made her a popular woman, as did her eagerness to perform in exotic and revealing clothing. She posed for provocative photos. They keep mentioning that she posed for provocative photos as if that was her claim to fame. But her claim to fame was actually that she was an entertainer and a dancer. But they just, like, this, this article is just focusing on, hey guys, she used to pose in the buff. Okay. Okay. Fucking subscribe, bro. Chalmers have got a lot to say about her. They used a lot of adjectives. One, one journalist in Vienna described her as slender and tall with the flexible grace of a wild animal and with blue black hair and that her face makes a strange foreign impression. Some, some people choose the weirdest ways to describe things. Yarr. Anyway, by 1910, so when did, the, when did World War I end? It was 1911 to 1914? No, I don't know. Anyway. There was a world war. It, the world war is fucking coming. 1918. 1918. Thank you. Okay. This is, it's part of her story. That's why I needed to ask. Thank you. 1914 to 1918. World war. Yes. Her career went into a decline after 1912. She performed in what would be her last show of her career on the 13th of March, 1915. She had begun her career relatively late for a dancer and had started putting on weight. However, by this time, she'd become a successful courtesan. Known more for her sensuality and eroticism than for her beauty. She had relationships with high-ranking military officers, politicians and others in influential positions in many countries. Her relationships and liaisons with powerful men frequently took her across international borders. Prior to World War I, she was generally viewed as an artist and a free-spirited bohemian. But as war approached, she began to be seen by some as a wanton and promiscuous woman, and perhaps a dangerous seductress. Okay, we've now reached the denouement of the story, okay? During World War I, the Netherlands remained neutral. As a Dutch subject, Zell was thus able to cross national borders freely. To avoid the battlefield, she travelled between France, the Netherlands, Spain and Britain and her movements inevitably attracted attention. During the war, Zell was involved in what was described as a very intense romantic sexual relationship with a Russian pilot, 23-year-old Captain Vadim Maslov, whom she called the love of her life. Maslov was part of the 50,000-strong Russian expeditionary force sent to the Western Front in the spring of 1916. 
In the summer of 1916, Maslow was shot down and badly wounded during a dogfight with the Germans, losing his sight in both eyes, which led Zell to ask for permission to visit her wounded lover at the hospital where he was staying near the front. As a citizen of a neutral country, Zell would not normally be allowed near the front. She was met by agents who told her that she would only be allowed to see Maslow if she agreed to spy for France. Remember what she was convicted of, hey? All right. This is part of the scandal about this woman. So before the war, she had performed as Matahari several times before the Crown Prince Wilhelm, eldest son of Kaiser Wilhelm II, and nominally a senior German general on the Western Front. You see, I don't know, the spy dude that hired her, man, the French FBI believed she might be able to obtain information by seducing the Crown Prince for military secrets. In fact, his involvement was minimal, and it was... German government propaganda that promoted the image of the crown prince as a great warrior, the worthy successor to the August monarchs who had made Prussia strong and powerful. You know, typical. Just have a great agent, good PR. You'll be you'll be fine. You'll be away swimming. They wanted to avoid publicizing that the man expected to be the next Kaiser was a playboy, noted for womanizing, partying, indulging in alcohol, who spent another portion of his time intriguing with far right-wing politicians, with the intent to have his father declared insane and deposed. Unaware that the Crown Prince did not have much to do with the running of the Army Group Crown Prince or the Fifth Army, the Bureau offered Zell one million francs. So I misread this originally. They, they offered her a million francs. And I was like, dog, if you got a million francs, why would you betray the chums? They offered her a million francs only if, only if she was successful in getting information from this chum. So if she could seduce him and provide France with good intelligence about German plans. But now remember, like, that he didn't know anything because it was all PR. So they'd sent her to the wrong plek with the wrong guy. Okay, so the fact that the Crown Prince had, before 1914, never commanded a unit larger than a regiment and was now supposedly commanding both an army and an army group at the same time should have been a clue that his role in German decision-making was mostly nominal. Zell's contact with the Bureau was Captain Georges Ladou. Ladou? Ladau. Ladou who was later to emerge as one of her principal accusers. You can see how this is like, they're stacking dominoes on a shaky table is what they're doing. In November 1916, she was traveling by steamer from Spain when her ship called at the British port of Falmouth. Falmouth? Falmouth? Falmouth. There she was arrested and brought to London, where she was interrogated at length by Sir Basil Thompson, assistant commissioner at New Scotland Yard in charge of counter-espionage. He gave an account of this in his 1922 book, Queer People, saying that she eventually admitted to working for the Bureau. Initially detained in Cannon Street Police Station, she was then released and stayed at the Savoy Hotel. A full transcript of the interview is in Britain's National Archives and was broadcast with Matahari, played by Eleanor Bronn, on the independent station LBC in 1980. So a couple years later, once, th once things are cleared, just, just for clarity, the CIA have a document, or they approved an article that was published in 1985 about this case. It was only cleared in like 2015, but I'll speak about that after... 
we get to the end of this situation. It's unclear if she lied on this occasion, believing the story made her sound more intriguing, or if French authorities were using her in such a way but would not acknowledge her due to the embarrassment and international backlash it could cause. So some background here. France fucked up. The French army, shaky ground, loose footing, bad management, horrible, absolutely horrible. In late 1916, Zell traveled to Madrid where she met with the German military attaché, Major Arnold Kull, and asked if he could arrange a meeting with the Crown Prince. During this period, Zell apparently offered to share French secrets with Germany in exchange for money. Though, whether this was because of greed or an attempt to set up a meeting with Crown Prince Wilhelm, it remains unclear. In January 1917, Major Kull transmitted radio messages to Berlin describing the helpful activities of a German spy codenamed H-21, whose biography so closely matched Zell's that it was patently obvious that Agent H-21 could only be the Matahari. The Bureau intercepted these messages and from the information they contained identified H-21 as Matahari. The messages were in a code that German intelligence knew had already been broken by the French, suggesting that the messages were contrived to have Zell arrested by the French. So you see where the double cross came in here. The French sent her to go, uh, the French sent her as a, as a French spy to spy on the Germans. And when she said to the Germans that she would to sell them some of the French secrets, then the Germans double crossed her, sending messages to Berlin in a code that they knew the French had broken, knowing that the French would then think it was her and then arrest her. Shitheads. General Walter Nikolai the chief intelligence officer of the German army had grown very annoyed that Matahari had provided him with no intelligence worthy of the name, instead selling the Germans mere Paris gossip about the sex lives of French politicians and generals, and decided to terminate her employment by exposing her as a German spy to the French. Okay, so listen to this. Listen to this. In 1916, the second bureau of the French war ministry let Matahari obtain the names of six Belgian agents. Five were suspected of submitting fake material and working for the Germans, while the sixth was suspected of being a double agent. So they didn't trust these dudes anyway. Six chums. They didn't trust them. Two weeks after Matahari had left Paris for a trip to Madrid, the double agent was executed by the Germans, while the five others continued their operations. This development served as proof for the second bureau that the names of the six spies had been communicated by Matahari to the Germans. In 1917, she was arrested in her room at the Hotel Elysee Palace. Elysee? Champs-Élysées. Elysée. Hotel Elysee Palace. Champs-Élysées in Paris. She was put on trial in July, accused of spying for Germany and consequently... Okay, so now this is, the, this is, this is where things get serious, right? She's accused of spying, the French are accusing her of spying for Germany and causing the deaths of 50,000 people. All right. So 50,000 soldiers, Matahari is supposedly responsible for that. All right. Although the French and British intelligence suspected her of spying for Germany, neither could produce definite evidence against her. Supposedly, secret ink was found in her room, which was incriminating evidence in that time period, but she contended that what they found was actually part of her makeup. Zell's principal interrogator, who grilled her relentlessly, was Captain Pierre Boucardon. He was later to prosecute her at trial. So the big thing about her trial as well was they were relentless in 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 questioning her and cross-examining her, but they wouldn't let her lawyer speak to her or, or cross-examine any of the other people in the trial, which is insane. That's nuts. That's fucking cuckoos. She did admit that she had accepted 20,000 francs from the German diplomat in the Netherlands to spy on France, but 
but insisted that she only passed on trivial information as her loyalty was entirely to her adopted nation France and this this story really just goes to show how the French are actually just they weren't good to her for the amount of fame that she has brought <sighs> so this guy that was cross-examining her he was doing everything to cast her activities in the worst possible light by going so far as to engage in evidence tampering nice asshole so all of this comes to a breaking point where it's discovered that she was essentially a scapegoat because in 1917 france had been badly shaken by the great mutinies of the french army in the spring of, of in the spring of that year following the failure of the Nouvelle offensive together with a huge strike wave and at the time many believed that france might simply collapse as a result of war exhaustion so they're taking all of this right all of this they're putting it into one thing and funneling it and placing the responsibility squarely on one person's shoulders. So in 1917, the, a new government had come into power, utterly committed to winning the war. In this context, having one German spy on whom everything that went wrong with the war so far could be blamed was the most convenient for the French government, making Matahari the perfect scapegoat, which explains why the case against her received maximum publicity in the French press and led to her importance in the war being greatly exaggerated. The Canadian historian Wesley Wark stated, Wesley Wark, Wark, hey man, I'm Wesley Wark, stated in 2014 that Matahari was never an important spy and just made a scapegoat for the French military failures, which she had nothing to do with, stating they needed a scapegoat and she was a notable target for scapegoating. Likewise, the British historian Julie Wheelwright stated she really did not pass on anything that you couldn't find in the local newspapers in Spain. Wheelwright went on to describe Zell as an independent woman, a divorcee, a citizen of a neutral country, a courtesan and a dancer, which made her a perfect scapegoat for the French, who were then losing the war. She was kind of held up as an example of what might happen if your morals were too loose. Of course, you know, doxing her. Yeah, that's what they did. Zell wrote several letters to the Dutch ambassador in Paris claiming her incidence. In innocence. My international connections are due of my work as a dancer, nothing else, because I really did not spy. It is terrible that I cannot defend myself. The most terrible and heartbreaking moment for Matahari during the trial occurred when her lover Maslov. Remember the Russian chum? He went blind, they shot him down. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. He, uh, he was deeply embittered by this point as a result of his losing his eyesight in combat. And he declined to testify for her, telling her he did not care if she was convicted or not. It was reported that Zell fainted when she learnt that Maslov had abandoned her. Her defense so okay, and then the, then they speak a little bit here about the defense counsel not being allowed to cross-examine anybody, and how they they used the fact that she was a woman as evidence of her guilt, saying that without scruples, accustomed to making use of men, she's a type of woman who is born to be a spy. Matahari became the archetype for the portrayal of the femme fatale. That's why this story struck me. This is where it started, right? Matahari was in a James Bond movie. A government framing someone to cover up their mistakes. Shocker, right? Cold water realization, that one. That's a real cold shower, isn't it? What a bunch of idiots. So the American historians have described her as naive and easily duped, but they're Americans, so I don't really take them seriously. The only thing that they said that is of any consequence is that she was a victim of men rather than a victimizer. And that's really the only statement they've made that carries any weight. So she admitted that she took money from Germany. It's contended that she took the money as reparations for the shit that they took from her during the war, 
So they took some of her stuff. It's they you don't really find out what they took, but I imagine it was like a couch and a piano and some other stuff and probably her apartment. So, but twenty thousand francs, what is that worth nowadays? You know what I mean? Like what what would be the equivalent? That can't be rent in Paris. We hit the, 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 the big time here in October 2001, right? Documents released from the archives of MI5 were used by a Dutch group, the Matahari Foundation, to ask the French government to exonerate her as they argued that the MI5 files proved she was not guilty of the charges she was convicted of. A spokesman from the foundation argued that at most, Zell was a low-level spy who provided no secrets to either side. But it's also, so they make the statement, but it's never, it, it isn't clarified in this, in this article whether or not she was exonerated. Because they do say maybe she wasn't entirely innocent, but it seems clear she wasn't the master spy whose information sent thousands of soldiers to their deaths, as has been claimed. Because that's also something they'll never admit to that. You know what I mean? So she was executed by firing squad, 12 soldiers, on 15 October 1917. She was 41. According to an eyewitness account by British reporter Henry Wales, she was not bound and refused a blindfold. She defiantly blew a kiss to the firing squad. There are conflicting accounts of what she wore at this thing. One says it was a neat Amazonian tailored suit, especially made for the occasion, and a pair of white gloves. But then somebody else says it was the only full clean outfit that she had in the prison with her at her disposal. Either way, she, she was dressing for the occasion. She really fucking brought her A-game to this. They shot her and she fell to her knees, gazing directly at them and slowly fell backwards and doubled over. And then one of the officers, a non-commissioned officer, walked over and shot her in the head with his revolver to make sure that she was dead. Okay, so the mystery, the first mystery was the spy thing. Was she a spy? Was she not a spy? Nobody can prove it. In 2015, the CIA cleared the article from 1985 where two reporters said that they had also, they'd found documentation to say that she wasn't this mega mind spy that was sending 50,000 chums to their death, but instead she was just doing her thing. She was just trying to get a, a cut, man. Just, you know, everybody was trying to get a cut in the war. Trying to, you're here for a good time, not a long time. But now the absolute mystery unfolds. The modern day mystery unfolds. Matahari's body was not claimed by any family members and was accordingly used for medical study. Her head was embalmed and kept in the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. In 2000, archivists discovered that it had disappeared, possibly as early as 1954, according to curator Roger Saban. During the museum's relocation, her head remains missing. Records dated from 1918 show that the museum also received the rest of the body, but none of the remains could later be accounted for. Matahari's sealed trial and related other documents, a total of 1,275 mostly handwritten documents, were declassified by the French army in 2017, 100 years after all of the nonsense had gone down how like how this went forward but it's it's really just that last bit about they they it's fucking missing dog her head somebody has her fucking head her embalmed head somebody has it imagine that shit like imagine going to someone's house and you'd be like yo check check out Matt, check this shit that's matahari right imagine like why would you steal that shit and then not put it on display in your house that's nuts
In the in the years since then, her birthplace has burnt down. They've uh, erected there's a center, an information center in the Netherlands that was created for displaying the mementos to her. And in popular culture, there was there've been a couple films. Greta Garbo played Matahari once. There's a bunch of films actually. Matahari appeared in the 1967 Casino Royale, and in 2017 there was apparently a 12 episode Matahari series that aired it was a russian portuguese tv show and something that i missed like you know when indiana jones 4 came out the crystal skull one and everybody was like oh yeah they're definitely gonna make a young indiana jones movie series they're definitely doing that dog in 1992 there was already a young indiana jones chronicles tv series matahari was in that that. dog i did not know that carrie fisher uh, wrote the episode choms that is murder mystery monday but it's sunday Thank you so much for listening to this episode. These are streamed live on twitch.tv forward slash H-U-S-B-I-N-T if you're keen to come and join in and jump in the chat with us. Otherwise, you can find it on anchor.fm forward slash or your favorite podcasting platform.